Welcome back to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger. I'm here, as always, with Mike Connolly. Hello. And uh, as you may have heard last episode, Tara Connolly is joining us on mic uh, as often as possible. Hi there. And today we have a special treat. Our first return guest, GX Jupiter Larson of The Haters. Hey, hey. <laughs> and what you just heard was the four of us, uh, was that listening to, playing, what, what were we doing there? Well... So the one of the fundamental uh, concepts behind this particular release was that the listener is forced to become the performer. There is no passive listening. You actually become part of the haters by interacting with the release. Well, you just heard it here. We're all in the haters now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we listened to slash performed Wind Licked Dirt across all three formats that it exists in which is a CD, LP, and cassette. The LP released by Triple R back in 1988. The CD released by GX himself in 1993. And the cassette version released by Hanson Records in 2008. All of which come with a supply of dirt to play the record. You don't even have to go find your own dirt. <laughs> um, was it your... It was your idea to do the to do this record. Then I take it. Did you approach Ron with the idea? Did something guys came up together? Uh, how did how did it come about? Um, okay, so Ron had I don't know if he came up with the concept anti record, but he released an Emil Bolio anti record, twelve uh, inch, and I actually don't remember the exact details of what made it an anti-record, but nevertheless, that's how he packaged it. That's how he promoted it. And I guess the response to that was pretty good. People found the concept entertaining enough to create some buzz about it. So he contacted me and said he wanted to do a series of anti-records by different people and if I would be interested. And although I didn't care so much for the original concept of his, which was an unplayable record, but I did like the idea of maybe a record that wasn't played the normal way. So I suggested to him this idea of a record that you bypass the need for a stereo and interact with the record. So he was fine with that. And um, at the time... I don't know why I was obsessed with dirt, but I was. So uh, I suggested, let's have a blank record uh, in a bag full of dirt and with instructions that in tells the person that they have to listen to the record by rubbing dirt on it. So he thought that was pretty funny, so he was fine with it. And he said, um, and this is all by correspondence, like by letters and postcards. The, the whole process took a couple months. But... Uh, to make a long story short, he said he was going to find out how much it would cost to press a silent record instead of just recycling, you know, already existing records, which I think his original anti-record was. Um, and I said, no, to be really pure, let's have a record with no grooves. Let's make it perfectly, you know, flat. He said, do you want white labels with that or black labels? And I said, black labels. And... Uh, yeah, and so the rest is history. Um, oh, the, the funny story about, okay, so uh, he related to me years later that uh, he promoted it as just a 
regular record. He didn't promote it as an anti-record. He didn't say that. They, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so people would come to his record shop and say, oh, I want the new Haters record. He says, oh, okay, because he kept it behind the counter. So he would take the record, put it in a bag, and then he had like a bucket of dirt or a box of dirt and a scoop. So he'd take the scoop of dirt and pour it into the bag with the record. And he said, most people didn't get the joke. Most people got really pissed. But he loved the look on their faces. So there was no way he was going to stop doing the joke. Oh my God, that is, that's incredible. And this is, this would have been before you guys actually met in person. So you said that you were doing this correspondent. Um, Yeah. I mean, we had been in touch for a good six years uh, before this, uh, trading tapes for the most part. Uh, And this, he had asked me to be on the Triple R 100. And I said no, because I already had... I had an issue with lock grooves at the time because <laughs> what was your issue with lock grooves at the time? Oh, well, this is a, a side <laughs> note then. So I had an issue with lock grooves because at the time, and we're talking about the early eighties here, uh, I would do these very uh, repetitive pieces, all tape loop based. And to me, I could hear the variation of, you know, the sounds, how they, because I would always use a couple different loops of different uh, lengths. So they would go in and out of phase with each other. And that going in and out of phase, I found quite fascinating. And that's what I was listening to. Most everybody else, at least the people who ran labels that released it, all they heard was a repetitive sound. And so would snip a two or four minute track down to two or four seconds and make that into a lock groove. If I knew that's what they were gonna do, I would have done a completely different piece. And so even labels that said, no, don't worry, we won't abbreviate you down to a lock groove that would still do it. So it made me kind of, um, yeah, uh, resentful. <laughs> uh, and um, so when, yeah, the Triple R 100 came out, I said, no, uh, I think Ron understood. Um, but since then, I've, I've recovered from <laughs> you've seen, my trauma with lock groups. You, you've seen the lock groups, right? So is this, yeah, the, yeah. is this the first release you did with on Triple R? I think it might be. I, there may be a couple compilations before this, but I think this is probably the first like real feature uh, release. How many copies was it? Do you remember? I don't remember. Uh, there had to have been at least a couple hundred because he got the records actually pressed. So he'd have to at least do two or three hundred. How did the CD version come about five years later? Um, yeah. Well, it's a um, strange one. So the CD version, um, I needed some easy cash. <laughs> <laughs> and I decided, uh, oh, AMK from Band Productions. It was his idea that maybe I should do a CD. Uh, version of Wind Lick Dirt. And he gave me a whole stack of blank CDs, uh, the kind that you usually get if you, you, you know, you order uh, a CD and uh, from a manufacturer and you, you get like, they're usually a stack of them, but they have like blank ones in the bottom and the top. So it's not to damage the ones that were actually manufactured, whatever they're called. I don't know, blanks. So he had a whole stack of blanks and he said, you should do something with this. So I decided, well, I needed cash, and, and I, <laughs> so I, I packaged, I d- redesigned the package to fit the format, and um, 
sold most of them locally in San Francisco, actually. I think Ron picked up a few and maybe a couple other distributors, but mostly they were sold uh, on Haight Street. Uh, <laughs> nice. where, where did you get yours, Gray? I bought mine, uh, this the store and person I've mentioned numerous times on the show from a record collector in Livonia and Devin Brainerd of Princess Dragon Mom used to manage that shop and curate all the noise there. I got a, a copy of Rosette and the Condor and... Uh, and Wind Lake Dirt there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I think previously I'd only heard Mind of the Gap and maybe some comp appearances. Right, right, yeah. Were you living in, you were living in SF at the time or in Denver? Uh, San Francisco. Uh, by 88, um, by the time Ron got a hold of me, because 88, half the year was in Denver, the other half was in San Francisco. But I think it was the time I was in San Francisco that that came about because... There used to be this uh, artist space called 455 10th Street in South of Market. And I remember using their computer to design the face, the cover, the front cover of uh, the Wind Like Dirt LP. So would have had to be in San Francisco. I would love to see that design process. I love the way all the, like these, of course, all have that sort of classic 80s, computer type but it's, it's the staircasing it's completely obliterated so i uh, uh just to let you in the secret though the the technique is to uh it's a bitmap graphic do it small and then blow it up stretch it really big and that's how you get this beautiful staircasing yeah it's not just the staircasing though because like on the wind like dirt there's sort of the uh there's this sort of gradient that's a really really crude gradient i guess that comes with part of it like a drop shadow or something yeah that was, yeah exactly it looks great <laughs> they, they all look really cool and then uh so that's the 1993 cd version but there's a 2008 cassette version released by hansen records yeah well, well hansen had released the cd re-release of in the shade of fire excellent record big fans thank you and it's it was a real milestone for me and i think the cd version is better than the lp version because the lp version i recorded too much material so a couple of the tracks had to be edited down but the cd you get all the tracks in their original length so you actually get more material and uh it's also the sound is a lot brighter on the CD, which is how I originally envisioned it, how I originally heard it when I was playing the tapes back to myself. So uh, I, I didn't really understand the concept of mixing to vinyl <laughs> when I originally yeah. did the LP. So, you know, there was a learning curve, sure. But by the 2000s, I had figured that out. Because um, In the Shade of Fire is the first Haters album, correct? The first LP. First LP. Yeah, yeah. It's the fourth or fifth record, something like that. But it's the first LP. The Got rest it. were all seven inches. Okay. And that's on Silent? That's on uh, PGR? Uh, originally, yes, yeah, Silent Records, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, um, although he, uh, Kim has rewritten the history of Silent Records, but that was the first official Silent Records release okay. uh, at the time. He's since rewrote his history, but so be it. But yeah, no, that was, um, uh, it came about in 86, um, my first time to San Francisco. Well, okay. no, that's not true. Second time to San Francisco. Uh, Kim was hosting a couple performances and he told me he was going to start this label and wanted to know if I would be interested in doing an LP and no one before him was foolish enough to suggest such a thing so <laughs> I decided to strike while the iron was hot yeah 
It's a great one. The CD reissue is is fantastic too. If, I'm not sure if that's still available, but if it is, and you don't oh, it, it. I think it is. It's also on Bandcamp. Okay, too. if you go to the Hanson Records uh, page on Bandcamp, you can get it that way. Great. And then, uh, can you get Windlick Dirt on Bandcamp? You know, I thought about <laughs> how I could do that, and uh, I'm still not completely satisfied with uh, the strategies or the choreography. But I'm still working on that idea. There has to be a way. An MP3 version of Wind Like Dirt. <laughs> so Hanson did the tape, and that was that was sort of yeah, born out of the CD reissue. Uh, uh, Dillaway had um, uh, it was after the uh, In the Shade of Fire. He really liked Wind Like Dirt, and he he knew that the CD had uh, there was already a CD version. He wanted to do it in a different format, so he suggested doing a cassette. And I said, that's, that's fine, as long as I don't have to do anything. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was really busy. I was really swamped with projects. And, and he said, he, so he, did, he reformatted uh, using, uh, based on the original LP cover art. He actually did the cover for the uh, cover art for the cassette. Fits and right in. Then he, uh, he gave me a, different, a few different options on the length of the tape or if there would be any tape or what have you. And uh, over a few emails, we both agreed that just having nothing but leader, just a very thin, a very short amount of leader and no tape would be the way to go. Yeah, that's the basically the LP version of it, right? Just mm -hmm. no, no grooves, nothing actually playable yeah. or usable at all yeah. on it. Yeah. Cool. Well, we got to... We got to play all of them. We did. We played the. <laughs> we played all three formats at the same time with some uh, original dirt that GX brought. <laughs> we did not play my copy of the CD. GX brought uh, one of each mm -hmm. of the, the releases. So one of the reasons we're doing this episode now, uh, we we we'd we love to have GX anytime, but specifically because coming up on uh, August seventeenth is the uh, Haters fortieth year fortieth anniversary show in uh, in Oakland. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my only reaction. Yeah, <laughs> we uh, we did a 40th anniversary performance at End Times uh, this year, and uh, we will be doing a 40th anniversary show in Denver in October. But August 17th is the California uh, anniversary show, and it's a great lineup because we have uh, Scott Chop Shop is flying in. Fantastic. Um, uh, Paul Dickerson from We Never Sleep will actually be flying in to be part of the haters. Oh, cool. Uh, we have AMK. We have Crawl Unit. Uh, uh, of course, Damian Romero's and um, Scott Arford, among a few others. Such so, a stellar lineup. Yeah, it's kind of a, a dream lineup, actually. Well, they have Scott. Hmm. I mean, that's, you know, when because we didn't ask him. He volunteered. That's great. He was, he, he has this tendency to call AMK up once in a blue moon and and they talk on the phone i don't know what about and um he uh tony had uh mk had um you know uh mentioned to scott this show coming up in august and the lineup and scott said oh i want to be part of that so he volunteered and we weren't none of us were going to say no yeah and you got yeah. uh, you got crawl unit Yes. Oh, wow. Too. We had to twist his arm, but we got it. <laughs> Yay. Something that seems to be work, something that goes through a lot of the haters' work is this kind of idea of anniversaries and dates and documentation. Um, 
is that something that you've always been interested in or is it something that just has kind of happened throughout your work? Um, uh, yes and no. Um, all of the above. Um, <laughs> so what got me interested in time and anniversaries was um, uh, entropy. Uh, entropy was always kind of the original uh, inspiration. And um, entropy only travels in one direction. And, um, well, of course, that depends how you define one direction. But let's, <laughs> let's keep this linear to some degree. But uh, it's entropy that forces the arrow of time in the singular direction that we're familiar with and used to. And so that relationship I found kind of interesting. So it's uh, a way to reinforce one concept uh, with the other and vice versa. Okay, so one of my favorite things on your website is every time I think about the permawave. Oh, uh, and so I think about it so much that at one point I was like, I need to start writing down every time I think about Jupiter Larson thinking about the permawave. <laughs> uh, so uh, the thing that I've been curious about is like uh, the wave motif. Like what's a wave for you? And like what's the importance of wave uh, in your work? Yeah, so... There's no um, simple way to explain it, and I don't have a witty reply, but... <laughs> well, then let's just get complicated. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> so, again, it, it stems from entropy and um, the idea that uh, pretty much any uh, scenario, any encounter you have, any, any degree of interactions can be expressed as a waveform. Uh, at least poetically. I mean, yeah. I'm not talking in terms of <laughs> physics here necessarily, yeah. but poetically, I like the idea of using some kind of, um, mm, I guess, faux scientific um, uh, diction within the context of poetry. And I like the idea of entropy and time and anything else mm. as a wave function. Yeah. Um, it kind of... Um, to some degree, it, it, um, it doesn't make it uh, objective, but it does divorce it from society, whatever it is that you happen to be talking about. You, you're taking it out of context, whatever the scenario mm -hmm. happens to be. Uh, the perma wave is code for revolution. Um, it's uh, a pause. It's, it's, uh, it's a, a brief stationary position before you continue. And, um, uh, well, actually, that's the omni wave. The omni wave is, is the pause. The perma wave is revolution. Uh, the Roma wave is the distance something travels before it's forgotten. Um, wow. Uh, the poly wave was a simultaneous um, movement in all directions. Uh, not to be confused with Brownian motion, which is still pretty linear, even if it's wandering every which way. Uh, perma wave, I guess most people would think the omni wave means going in every direction at once, but um, there's always an exception to the rule. So I, I used polywave because I thought it sounded better at the time. But so many people brought up the idea of omni wave that I said, okay, well, we're going to use that as a completely different meaning. Uh, just to, I guess, stick my finger in everyone's face. <laughs> well, I always thought of the perma wave again as as the um, time that something unexpected happened. Yeah, yeah. Or or that 
motion to chaos sure. within a wave. So yeah, absolutely. I, I love it. And that's how I was taking it in. But yeah, again, no, that, yeah, no, that's that's but, completely uh, appropriate. But I think they're beautiful because it not only describes like the way we experience sound, but it gives you kind of a visual reference to yeah. take it to an otherworldly place that's not necessarily mundane. Yeah, I um, I wanted to um, like a silo wave um, is kind of one of my favorites. That's um, mm-hmm. uh, the distance between nothing and something, and so yeah, they all are voids of one kind or another mm-hmm. for the most part. So they're like my six favorite voids, and uh, yeah. So I, I wanted to give them fancy, scientificy sounding <laughs> names because. That's how I celebrate things. and um, But there are also relationships, there are uh, types of voids um, that I found interesting. You know, um, the idea that there could be a distance between something and nothing. And, and what does that mean? What is that? And uh, so it brings up a lot of uh, interesting wordplay in terms of actual writing. Uh, and conceptually, it ends up with a lot of mental play, a lot of mental... Mm, humor, I guess, uh, f- uh, conceptual fun. In- Imaginary physics. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, just, you know, um, you know, uh, this whole, how, how does one define up and down? And we all tend to take a very linear meat world interpretation of that. But I think it's uh, fun to just pause for a second and entertain that up and down could mean something completely different. And that that doesn't have to be necessarily uh, an attack against the traditional interpretation, but you could have both interpretations simultaneously. Now that's where the polywave comes in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I uh, look at your website, I read about your performances, listening, I get so curious. And so uh, I've just been like chomping at the bit to like ask you so many things. So uh, one is about, uh, I can't pronounce Ross Reyes Mulwaith, the uh, lovely Welsh mathematician. Uh, yes. Uh, and I'm very excited about Ross. Uh, and I actually decided you don't tell me if it's a real person or not because i don't want to know because in my imagination you got this book um back in the day at like a like a thrift shop and read it and it just really resonated with you um i did look up that his name means ross reasonable work in welsh which i think is a very um pragmatic and sexy uh name (laughs) um and so uh i guess I guess I just was curious about like finding that concept within um, your work and like where you went with it. Like um, what was the most inspirational aspect of Ross? I think the most inspirational part of that man's work was the way he related to numbers. And I could see his example reinforce or reemphasize uh, my own interest in entropy, and I, I've always had a, you know some interest in numbers, of course, but um, it just seemed uh, a very convenient uh, vehicle to combine my obsession with both decay and and numbers in uh, in a more poetic way. So you know it gets down to um, 
the actual performance, the original version of the performance that you're mentioning, is taking a calculator and shoving it into sandpaper till there's very little of the calculator left. One of my favorite pieces uh, that I've ever done, and um, and there's just something very poetic. Uh, it uh, you know exactly what it means. Well, everyone has a slightly different interpretation, but their interpretation of what it is is instantaneous. And I kind of like that. It's um, taking entropy and I guess numbers to a more abstract mm -hmm. way, in a more abstract way, it really simplifies the equation. I mean, you know, what could be more entropic than erosion? And yeah. So we're eroding the numbers, we're eroding mathematics into dust. And uh, uh, anyway, so I just like the poetry of that. And, and this is why it's probably the piece that I've performed in one version or another, probably the most often, actually, at this point. And this is the the piece is normally no, go, knows, known as the thinking Ross the, does. the thinking Ross does, correct? Or yes. the thinking Ross did, okay. depending yeah, what mood I was in at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and definitely uh, zero is louder than negative one. Uh, just I can't stop thinking about that. That's fabulous. I think that's what got my attention. In the yeah. book that I yes, found in a course. thrift shop. Oh, exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was very du dusty in the back and, of a mm -hmm. thrift shop. Actually, it was the front of the thrift shop in a, in a dusty box, but uh, the book was in surprisingly good shape. Excellent. Excellent. On Haight Street <laughs> in San Francisco. What was the, what was the first uh, time you did the performance? It would have been in the 80s? It would have been the 80s. I'm... I, if I'm, I'm, okay, so I may be mistaken, but my current memory has it in either 88 or 89, somewhere in that ballpark. I believe it was Santa Cruz and it was opening up for Mersbow. Oh, wow. Cool. And I'm, if that wasn't the first, it was probably the second or third time I had done it. Wow. That's so That cool. had to be a phenomenal show. I, I would do like a good 40-minute, uh, half-hour uh, run. And, of course, it's very manual because I like the circular motion of the calculator on the sandpaper. And most people said that they thought it, my arm would be really tired, that it would be really exhausting. And although I couldn't do a 40-minute version of the performance now, back in the 80s, I had no trouble doing it because it was too much fun. You know, <laughs> watching the calculator disintegrate. Uh, was actually I found mesmerizing and, and very um, meditative. Do you have a preferred calculator brand or type of calculator you used for that? No, but I, I uh, for the calculator no, but I do have a favorite type of sandpaper, and it's like really abrasive. It's like the the most abrasive with the biggest chunks that you can get. Uh, that seems to work the best, although. You know, I've been forced to use a, a finer sandpaper due to a lack of availability of the type I would prefer, which is why I now travel with sandpaper. But before <laughs> I got smart, when I was just getting whatever sandpaper I could find at the time, um, I noticed the difference, but I don't think anyone else did. I don't think anyone else can tell the difference between fine and rough sandpaper, but I can, so. Would the funnels, do you have to have a different type of sandpaper to sand, say, a metal funnel? 
No, uh, again, it's the same. Uh, the, the coarser the sandpaper, the, the more fluctuation you're going to get uh, in, in the variation of the sound. Uh, the funnel will last longer. Oh. Uh, but not by much. <laughs> and the, and that, the, that, the funnel being the uh, drunk on decay. Yeah, yeah. Series. So now, it, kind of at this point, I mean, you've... Do you kind of pick and choose what... Uh, what type of performance you're going to do at this point i mean because you kind of have you kind of have now the you know thinking rasta's drunk and decay mind the gap you can kind of pick and choose yeah uh, that's been true for a while Mm -hmm. Uh, is that how you've always done or do you do kind of mm, eras yeah probably the first 10 or 20 years that was probably the case but for the last 20 years it's pick and choose uh, for the most part, uh, unless it's a brand new piece, and then I'll, I'll do it a few times. Usually what would happen, um, I had uh, this piece called Changing the Tire, and where people would wear tires over their shoulders, or in some variation, and there were power grinders that were mic'd. You would wear the tire down as much as you could, which proved to be really difficult. You know, those things are made to last. I feel yeah. like those would be pretty long <laughs> it seems performances. Hard. Oh, yeah, yeah no, they, they, yeah, it, um, and you created more smell than dust. Um, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, so when I did that piece, I did it a whole bunch of times. And so this is kind of in the era when I would be like, I, I would pick a new, I would d- develop a new piece and just play that till I felt I had perfected it. And once I had perfected it, I kind of got bored with the concept, so I'd move, move on to some other kind of choreography. But there, I remember that piece in particular because there was one show in San Francisco, uh, Hotel Utah, and there was a big cast, and we all had tires and sanders, and we were making all this noise and dust and smell. And there was just something about it, you know, it's the, maybe the size of the cast or the number of grinders or sanders or, or, or whatever, uh, maybe the venue, maybe the, the audience, but it just felt so right. It felt like it was such a perfect rendition i don't think i've ever done the piece since and usually that's what happens when i like i i'll stop doing a piece when i feel like i can't get it any better than the previous uh rendition and i only kind of the only time until very recently the only time i'll go back to a piece is when i figure ah but i could have done this as well or instead so i want to try the new variation uh, of the choreography, but in the last like ten or so years, it's pretty much pickle choose at at this point. So, Connolly mentioned you've you've documented and cataloged and kept track of your performances. Uh, what what constitute because there's such a variety because there's such a variety of different performances. What constitutes a performance to you? What is it? Intense premeditation, spontaneity. Uh, it's premeditation. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, so an interesting little story. Maybe I've already mentioned this to you. Stop me if I have. Um, so I was in England uh, visiting Mike Dandu of Condom. And uh, this is early on. This is probably 89. And up until that point, I had not really, I wasn't into documentation. I felt the piece was live. It was, it was stationary in a moment in time. And that documentation was a lie. Mike convinced me otherwise. 
Mike convinced me that it was a mistake not to document uh, my performances because they were so varied and because I could adapt to many different types of situations that he claimed a lot of performers couldn't do. So because of his encouragement, when, uh, while I was visiting him in, in uh, the uh, autumn of 89, I sat down, because at that time I hadn't done 100 performances yet, and I actually could remember all of them. And so I sat down and started writing them all down and numbering them. And the numbering actually helped wow. me remember them. Now, if you ask me about a particular number or location, <laughs> I probably can't remember because it's, you know, I'm approaching 500 shows and it's 40 years and I'm an old man and it's all just a blur <laughs> at best. But at the time, uh, he taught me, regardless if he knew it or not, he, t he taught me the value of documenting because it made uh, communicating my ideas easier to um, people who had venues, people who organized festivals. It just made, it, it created a more vivid picture that they could understand better what I was trying to get at. And it also, okay, the other side note to this is that I realized that I had reoccurring themes that I hadn't realized up until that point. You know, to me, they were all pretty random, uh, a lot of smashing stuff up and, you know, what have you. But um, at that point, I realized that I was really obsessed with holes, that, you know, digging, mm -hmm. drilling, uh, whatever, uh, that holes were kind of a, this reoccurring theme that I hadn't realized up until that point. So that actually changed the direction to some degree. Uh, since I became more self-aware of what I was doing, that kind of affected the direction that I would take after that. Okay. Uh, the A lot of those performances are documented in the Drilling a Hole Through the Sky book. Uh, that was the 30th anniversary? Probably, yeah. Yeah, a book that uh, Helicopter, John Weiss, published, right? And uh, so now you've got 10 more years of performances. Any plans to <laughs> catalog everything that's happened since then? Well, a lot of people would like to see an updated version of the book i would love to see an updated version of the book because not just for the additional 10 years worth of performances but since that book got published i've gone back because i got a lot of feedback when that book first came out a lot of people who were at a variety of different shows had either similar or somewhat different interpretations of what happened but they and would express this and but also, too, people say, oh, I was at that show, and they would describe something that I was unaware of. So I've actually expanded the original document to include more names and places and, and other acts that performed the same night and other interpretations of, of what went on. So even though there's only been an additional 10 years worth of activity, the book would probably be twice the size now because a lot more information has been included that oh. I originally forgot about or wasn't aware of. All right, Weiss, you heard that. <laughs> Drilling a hole through the sky, redux. Um, well, I'm, I, I'm so happy you started uh, documenting because we have some of my favorite of the performances are the, you know, looking at, you know, looking at dust for 15 minutes. Um, of course, the one that, 
you know, I'm still obsessed with and think about all the time is you and MB counting the garbage cans in Milan. Absolutely. Um, so I'm so happy that, that Mike, that's so cool that Mike is the one who kind of encouraged you to document, um, this stuff. I'm very thankful for that. So now we get to look at dust and think about it with you in theory. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> when did you get in contact with Mike? Oh, um, okay. So that's a fun, uh, story. So I was invited to perform at this festival in Bordeaux, which started my long history with Bordeaux, uh, but the DMA Square Festival. And I think it was probably the last time that festival was held. <laughs> GX, shut it down. Uh, yet again, <laughs> shutting down show after show. That's, that's the list I should be keeping. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, what happened is... Um, it was a, I was unaware of this at the time, but it was a very prestigious festival. I guess a lot of um, musical acts got their big break with this particular festival. And it had kind of an industrial-ish slant to it for most of its history. Uh, but um, Stefan Santini from the Sounds of Consciousness Rape label, he was invited to kind of co-chair or core um what would be the term um curate um that ed edition of the festival so of course he invited uh, far more noisier people than the festival would normally have invited so he had people like mike of condom um and and, and miss sammy of Mersbal. um this is the trip that he and i took from uh the Netherlands down to the right. south of France. Uh, and they did the collab. And we did the collab, right. yeah. Uh, well, and we did the collab. I did three sets that night. Uh, I did the collaboration with Miss Sammy, and then um, uh, two different sets outside. Um, I didn't like the, uh, the stage very much at the time because the turnout wasn't that great for the size of the theater. Now, for your typical noise show, it was like a huge crowd. But for the size of the theater, I mean, yeah, okay. So it, it seemed weird to perform on such a large stage in a large theater where, you know, they weren't, you know, visually it, it seemed odd. So I performed, I moved my performances in the front lobby. Uh, nice. And that made way more sense because the yeah. lobby would be just packed full of people. There were stairs going up to the mezzanine area that was completely packed. So it was more intimate. And it was, yeah, yeah, you know, breaking stuff and making a mess. And uh, and it went over very well. It was a lot of fun. Um, uh, but Mike, yeah, he, he also performed uh, at that festival. And uh, we just got to talking. And because uh, he had heard of me, but he wasn't sure what to make of me. So, yeah. and um, so we got to talking and... He said, oh, do you, have you ever come to England? I said, well, you know, just once before, but not to perform, just to visit and blah, blah, blah. He says, oh, well, you know, uh, you can come, you know, come to England and I'll set up some shows. And I said, well, you know, I'll be done in France and, uh, you know, I have to go to Austria, but after Austria, I could come to England after that. Yeah. He maybe was thinking of like a year or two. I'm thinking in terms of a couple months, <laughs> but he was fine with that. He was totally hip to it. He said, yeah, I can set up some shows for you by the time you're ready to come to England. 
So, uh, yeah, that's how that happened. And then for the next two or three or four years, I went to England every year and spent the, uh, the winter with uh, Mike and whoever his girlfriend was at the time and had a great time. He originally was in Wolverhampton, which uh, this tiny, you know, in American terms, it would be a suburb of London. To them, it's like uh, nowhere near London. But to us, yeah, yeah it would be just outside of London. It's like, I don't know, an hour on the train, you know, right. which, yeah, oh. doesn't get you outside the county of L.A. Right. <laughs> and then after the, after Wolverhampton, he moved to Birmingham, which was a great town. Um, and uh, so I visited him up there uh, uh, a few times and um, worked on a bunch of shows together, did some collaborating together. Um, he wanted me to produce like this. Uh, he wanted me to do the final mix of a couple seven inches that he was doing. This was the last time I went to visit him, which was probably in like in '92. And so I said, "Yeah, okay." I'd never done that before. I, you know, I'd never mixed somebody else's. And, and so he, you know, at the time he would um, uh, rent a studio with an engineer, and uh, and so uh, I was fine with that. Uh, because uh, I'd already done a lot of work on radio, so I was familiar with the, the gear. And uh, but you know, there were, I was kind of excited to remix Condom because there was a way I would love to hear it sound. Mm -hmm. And I figure, okay, I'm going to get this chance to GXify Condom, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 Condom seems fine with it. Okay, so I I did it. Uh, I mixed it to the way my ears would want to hear it. I could feel he was uneasy about it, and he ended up renting an extra day <laughs> to unmix the GX in condom and make it more of a mic uh, condom, which I, you know, I was fine with. I of understood. Um, he, he wanted his voice to really stand out. It was yeah, a very yeah. traditional power electronics. You know, noise is more of a background, and the voice is jumping in your face. And what I did is that I mixed the voice further back and the noise further up, so they're they're more equal. So mm. it's more of a, a wall of noise, which uh, my ears liked, but uh, Mike's ears did not particularly <laughs> care for. But you know, we had fun anyway. So we realized that no, we can't work together on, on that level. But right. You, you did contribute a lot of source sounds to like some of those seven inches and War Against Society and some other other Eighth Pillar oh, maybe oh, yeah, and some other yeah, material. Yeah, yeah, no, he. Uh, he would ask if he could sample from uh, my releases, and I said, yeah, yeah, Mike, you can do whatever you want. And uh, I gave him free range as far as what he would want to sample and how he would want to use it. Um, Mike was, uh, was an incredible artist, and I say was because he says he's retired and doesn't care to perform or record anymore. But um, of all the power electronic acts out there he to me was the most legitimate and the most interesting uh he had this uh obsession with faith and be it religious or otherwise but faith was a concept to him that he just i wanted to explore uh he was very interested in different historical examples of extreme faith and he wanted to uh bring that into uh the waking world that he occupied and uh, he did it very poetically and uh, had an amazing stage presence um he actually came to san francisco and it might have been not oh four 
maybe oh three oh four something like that. It was a San Francisco harsh noise festival, either one or two, and um, uh, so that's the last time I saw him. Although we've been in touch via email, but um, yeah, he had an incredible stage presence. It seemed more legit, more real. I mean, a lot of power electronics. Uh, I'm sure my critique of power electronics isn't uh, isn't wouldn't be a surprise to anyone, uh, but. Um, you uh, you you were if I'm not mistaken you were you were I think you're credited with whippings on Eighth Pillar. Is yeah, that yeah. Did you is that something you actually recorded for the Eighth Pillar? No, or? no, that's from the cassette on We Never Sleep, um, which there are two different editions of. But it's uh, my girlfriend at the time and a sample of whipping. And again, it's two tape loops, one of her screaming, one of the whip cracking, and they're going in and out of phase with each other, and. Um, Franz DeWartz said it was the worst tape I ever did, because he's, he's, he's a puritan little snob, but I say that lovingly. And uh, but everyone else seemed pretty obsessed with the uh, with the release, and uh, it, was, it was one of We Never Sleep's best uh, sellers for a long time. Um, I think the the tape loops worked so well with the sound material because you really couldn't pinpoint where the loops started and stopped. So it was pretty seamless. And so on a technical level, I was quite pleased with it. You know, thematically, you know, it was, well, I was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, we Never Sleep uh, is a, obviously an important label and kind of crew band for you. Actually, our, on, our, on our way here, Tara and I were listening to Blank Banner uh, on We Never Sleep, the Blank Banner CD. With the great track, The Facts About the Polywave. So we, we discussed some of those <laughs> yeah, facts yeah, earlier. Um, so tell us a little about the We Never, the we Never Sleep guys and, and your relation with them. And yeah, yeah. Like so this was in 86, early 86. And I think I was in Seattle probably at the time. And uh, Dickerson and uh, Paul Dickerson and Mark Metz uh, were We Never Sleep at that time. And they were putting together something, I think they called it the Erotic Art Festival. Either that was predetermined beforehand, or that's what they ended up calling it. Um, anyway, uh, I, I don't remember what release, what record of mine they heard, but they really liked it and wanted to know if I would come and perform. And I said, sure, not realizing how far away Denver was from Seattle. Uh, I was it, young. Oh, it's I, a track. I, it's I, a track. Yeah, it really is. is. It yeah. actually, it really is. And. Uh, and I, you understand why, once you get there, why people who stop to visit seldom leave, because it's, <laughs> it is the middle of nowhere. Post it up. Um, no, but anyway, uh, let's see. So I traveled with a couple friends of mine from the area, and we went to Denver and uh, performed at this festival and ended up getting a couple other shows. Uh, in Colorado, um, the first one that ever ended in a true riot that was in Boulder, Colorado. Actually, that was a surprise. That and that wasn't that wasn't a plan. No, no, it wasn't. But once it happened, I really liked it uh, a lot. Actually, I mean, uh, there was some vandalism that went on in the Denver show as well. Someone pulled the fire alarm, and that created a lot of chaos. But it wasn't a full-scale riot like the Boulder show the next day was. So this got me thinking, and it was after that, for the longest time, I'd always have inside agitators in the audience to provoke them into rioting, or at least reacting with some passion. 
And uh, that was great success. Uh, it only, I only needed to do that for maybe a year or two. Um, certainly by 80, well, even 87, 88, I mean, people knew. There was like, you know, okay, you know, you could see people in the audience getting ready to storm the Bastille. <laughs> and uh, it was great. It was great fun. I, I love, you know, I, I come from out of punk, you know. That, you know, my very, very earliest days are in punk and i got interested in punk less to do with the music and more to do with the audience to me the audience was the real show you know the the way they would dress uh their overreaction to anything uh the level of passion um and the way that the bands at least in the very early days would interact with the audience in a very direct fashion and you certainly didn't see that in music before that N not not like that, you know. And so, uh, to me, this was kind of like uh, what punk should have been, you know. People just storming the Bastille. And um, it, it worked out fine. You know, I didn't even need agitators after a while. People just knew what to do, and they expected it. And, and maybe they expected it a little too much. So this, of course, you know, something ends up that was fun for the first four or five years starts getting a little, you know, boring. And you want, you know, something else. You know, at the time, especially in the 80s, it was nice being able to go to Europe as often as I did that decade because the audience, it was completely different than an American audience. They had a, a completely different way to interact with you. And uh, so you could do quieter, more conceptual performances in Europe, whereas America, you could have fun doing the bigger, grander, more ridiculous, uh, passionate uh, performances. Do you, you? I mean, it does seem that at a point the performances did probably become very much, you know, very much, you know, noise, and, you know, and and as we know it. But do you? Do you? miss or do you still do some sort of more quieter more conceptual performances these days or is it or is it mostly going to be you know the the noise performance um or is it all the same oh, well it's not all the same no I, I think most of the performances at least for the last 20 years have been far more sound oriented and the first 20 years they're probably more most of them would be more theatrical more conceptual um, and so, yeah, I, uh, I don't, do I miss it? No, I don't. Uh, it's been a, a progression. It would be hard for me to go back and reenact some of those early shows because I just would care so little. I just couldn't drag myself to do it. It's, it's done. Someone else can do it better. More power to them. Please go right ahead. Just let me know when you're performing. I'll come and watch. But um, it doesn't interest me. Uh, the 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 only reason why I'm still performing is because I keep coming up, or someone suggests a variation on the theme that I go, oh, I haven't done that yet. So that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps why I keep performing. I couldn't do, you know, I had to stop doing the big smash em up kind of shows because for two reasons. Well, one, I got banned from every alternative space, artist-run alternative space you can think of in San Francisco anyway. And two, every corporate-owned, privately-owned 
disco dance rave club wanted to hire me to trash their venues deliberately so it'd be cheaper for them to do their redecoration or their renovation. <laughs> and that was funny the first couple times I did it. But after that, it's like, I don't want to work for the man. Forget that. You know? <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's ironic that it's the establishment clubs that got into it and the alternative clubs, you know, shunned me, I think, at that time period. So... You know, that, that was funny, but that was good enough. Just the fact that it happened like that was interesting enough for me to say, I don't need to keep doing this. I can do something else and disappoint audiences for the next few years. And then <laughs> they'll get used to it and then accept it. And then I'll figure out some other way to disappoint them. How are audiences going to be disappointed on the 17th of August? <laughs> I'm actually going to premiere a brand new piece called Digging Through Time. Wow, and um, I have all the props ready, and uh, I will not. It involves a very large clock and a very hefty shovel. That's all I'll say. <laughs> wow. Is there any type of performance that you uh, still want to do, but haven't figured out exactly how to make it happen? Oh, I want to get shot out of a cannon. And I, I keep saying this for like 30 years. I've said, I want to be shot out of a cannon. No one takes me up on it. What All right. gives? All right, everybody. What gives, America? Who's Come on. Somebody got a cannon? Somebody, we got to get this to happen. So let's let's start spreading the word now. Let's shoot GX out of a cannon. Yeah, that yeah. would be amazing. I, 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 I mean, I realize that you have to apprentice. I realize that this takes you know, some skill and some premeditation. You know, you, there, you just don't get shot out of a cannon. There's... A right way and a wrong way and but i haven't been able to find like a circus performer who'll take me up on this i think they all think i'm insane because i'm not one of them so you know they don't want anything to do with me but i'm sincere i you know i got to perform in the squared circle in a couple wrestling matches now i need to get shot out of a cannon after that i think i think i'm pretty good you know? <laughs> i think i can go without regret and that's actually something that we uh did want to talk to you about is there was a time you did manage wrestle. You managed, you were a, ma a wrestling manager. I was a heel manager right. in the Oaktown Wrestling Alliance, um, based out of Oakland, California. This is the early part of millennial. Um, um, yeah. So, you know, I had a, a long love affair with professional wrestling. I always, even as a kid knew it was theater, but that's what I thought was so great about it. Um, and anyway, so to make a long story short, I have this opportunity to perform uh, at this wrestling with this wrestling league. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'm in no physical condition to be a wrestler, but I'll I'll, I'll be a heel I'll be a heel manager for you. And they they grabbed that opportunity. Now, what, what, did you have a name, or did you were you just Jesse well, Bear Larson? No, they called me Jupiter. And, okay, the story, the, 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 the actual true story behind this is that there's this wrestler called Perry Saturn. And he used to be kind of a mid-card performer in the old WWF, what we now call the WWE. Okay, so um, Perry's been in the indie circuit now for quite some time, or at least up until that point. He had, I don't know if he's even still active, but... Uh, around the time, uh, when was this, 2002 or three, something like that, um, he was supposed to uh, show up for uh, 
this card that the uh, Oak, Oak Town group was putting together. And I was going to get teamed up with him. So it'd be Saturn and Jupiter. Or Ju- yeah. And so I'd be his manager and, you know, I'd do all the things that a heel manager does for his heel. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. That's fine. And But then Perry doesn't show up, which is probably why he doesn't get much work these days or didn't ended up not getting much work. So I got paired with these other guys uh, instead. So the name, otherwise I would have gone as Mr. X. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that <laughs> yeah. didn't get to happen. But that's fine. It was a fun. It was a fun time. Uh, I got to perform in a, a couple matches, and um, uh, and and they had plans for me. They the the war chief, the guy who actually was the booker for uh, the league. He, you know, he wanted me to get more involved. He said, "Oh, come on, man. Can I pick you up and throw you down a few times?" And oh, I was so tempted. Yes. yes. Did you get thrown at all? I didn't. I was too. I was too quick for them. I, yeah. <laughs> I ran too quick. They couldn't. But this was afterwards. This was after the first couple times I performed with them, and the war chief said, "Oh, come on, man! Like you know, let's get you more involved." And because they were traveling, I think they their next stop was going to be uh, Phoenix. Maybe I don't know. Um, and I, I seriously considered, but you know, my my knees were already shot by the time this, because this is late in life. I mean, if I was back in my twenties or even my thirties, I would have been hell bent. Let's be like a no name indie wrestler in the indie leagues. That's fine. That would that would be great. It was a great experience, though. I mean, um, coming out from uh, backstage going through the audience towards the ring oh, and man. as people are clapping and cheering and booing at you. I mean, it's an experience that I, I like never had like that. Um, the other thing I, I thought was great is how like all these guys, yeah, all the, the guys that, uh, that performed the same night, they're all very athletic, you know, they were, except for the war chief. He was just his size you know, his 600 pounds. But everyone else was a very fit athlete. But at the same time, backstage in the changing room, you could see the creative side of their brains working. And they were talking about choreography and they were talking about narrative and they were talking about, you know, how to support each other. Uh, and I, that was that was great. It was great to actually, I mean, I knew that that's how it more or less was most of the time, but it was great to see it in real life, the, the actual real Athletes actually engaging in art, uh, in in theater, and they understood that. You know, there's one guy I forget his name now, but he actually made his own action figures. <laughs> he, like he made them himself. He made them himself. He actually had a mold. He'd actually like <laughs> inject you know, these molds, and then <laughs> his wife sold the costume on them. I don't know. I, the, the, he was asking too much. I wanted to buy one, but um, you know, it, it was really it was really interesting. I mean. I've known a few wrestlers now uh, over the years, and it, it, it's interesting The because, um, you know, everyone says, oh, it's fake, it's fake. But not every wrestler knows that. I mean, there is a certain type of personality who becomes a professional wrestler, and some of them actually get national, if not international, notoriety. And they're completely unaware that it's, you know, choreographed, that it's supposed to be staged. They, uh, some, a few of them actually think that that's just their opponents trying to psych them out. And that they, for the life of them, believe that it's a completely legitimate competition. 
And and then you have situations where wrestlers in the real world actually do get pissed off at each other. And then it turns into a shooting match. And the only thing the referee can do is basically leave the ring and wait for these guys to tire themselves out. Uh, so it's a little more complicated than it being just purely staged. Um, and that's also interesting to me in terms of a theater that when performers, and you, you hear this about actors too, that they get so into their character, they get so into their character, they forget who they are. They become the character that they're playing. This happens a lot in professional wrestling. You know, it's like um, Randy Savage wasn't the macho man until he got into wrestling and dedicated himself to his character to such a degree that he forgot that he wasn't the macho man. This is well documented. I mean, you can talk to and listen to interviews with people that knew him on a much more intimate level than I did. But they'll, they'll all say, oh, yeah, he really believed every nonsense word that came out of his mouth. So I love that passion in an actor. I do. I, I have nothing but respect for it. And so wrestling is something you grew up with. Oh, yeah, yeah. From when I was in the single digits, yeah. Oh, wow. And you obviously incorporated that into the haters. Well, what was great is that uh, when I came up with the untitled title belt, I got to wear that belt in the squared circle during the matches where I performed as a heel. Oh, no way, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> so Good. to me, this was the ultimate way of... Not justifying or making it making the belts real like they really were a wrestling belt because while well, they were in the ring you know uh, i was wearing it as the war chiefs chased after me and you know as i uh, as i cheated and distracted the referee for my men and all that stuff so and and yeah. if i'm not mistaken did damien help you with that yeah uh, yeah that? so there was a few people involved in that uh my friend Paul, who uh, owns Body Manipulations up in San Francisco, he used to do a lot of leather work. And he also made my uh, the, the hood, the mask that I currently wear. He, uh, he designed and made that. And he also did the leather work for the belt. And Damien did the, uh, the electronics because it actually is a, a noise generator. Or you can use it as a microphone. There's a few, the way it's wired, there's a few different ways you can actually use, utilize the belt. It's but so Damien cool. used to do a lot of my wiring for me until, oh, I really? and until I figured out how to do it myself, but yeah. Have there been many performances of the haters that you were not present at? Now, I know that there's one that that occurred at the same time. It One in yeah. Holland and yeah. one in yeah. Boston, yeah. correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so other than that, has there ever been a haters performance that you were not present at? Well... Yes and no. <laughs> There's been a couple shows where I was in the audience, not on stage, but in the audience. And that, because I always wanted to see the haters live. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? It is great. So uh, yeah. everyone should make that a point in their life so to see the haters there's live. There's a couple times where I would have a, my team on stage and I would stay in the audience so I could get to experience what it would be like to see it as an audience member. It's hard. You really want to get up on stage with those guys. How did you coordinate the performance that took place, one in Boston and one in Holland? Oh, um, 
the the kids in Holland wanted to do like a remote control thing. Uh, they had their own idea of what they wanted to do. They wanted to do it as the haters. And at the time, you know, because they asked so nicely, I said, well, okay, when is this supposed to happen? And they, they, they gave me a date, and I said, oh, well, so, you know, I'm actually performing at the same time in, in, uh, in a different city in, in, here in America. So why don't we just make this the same perform? Uh, well, well, we'll have the two events be the same performance. The performance will be kind of an intercontinental thing. And they were happy with that. And uh, I was so pleased when I saw their documentation that they sent me because they hadn't really explained what they were going to do. But when I saw it, I thought, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty good. I love that. That's so awesome. One thing um, that I know a lot of people got really excited about um, hearing our other interview with you uh, was the discussion about the early mail art that you were involved in. Um, and that's kind of how you end up meeting a lot of the different people. And it's still something you do to this day, correct? Oh, it is actually. Yeah. Not as intensely as I used to say back in the seventies or early eighties, but I still, you know, I still do it a little bit. When you were doing it in the seventies and eighties, was it kind of an everyday thing? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. It's, it, it was like almost 24 seven. Um, cause and there was just so much of it. Cause it was cheap to send even a package to anywhere in the world. I mean, compared to now, I mean, it was super cheap. And there was a lot of people doing it. And it was the only way to get in contact to those people, with those people, or, or experience what they were doing. I mean, a lot of mail art done now is kind of, uh, seems kind of nostalgic. It's kind of a love affair with the postal system in and of itself. But back in the 70s and the 80s, it wasn't like that because the postal system was still a current contemporary stage. So there wasn't that uh, nostalgia. And so people were using the postal system as a medium for whatever else it was they were interested in. And uh, I made for some very interesting mail. Uh, I was mostly in touch with the the guys of... uh, of Eastern Europe. Uh, I thought it was interesting to get their take on things. Um, and uh, South America, a lot of a lot of the guys in Central and South America who were going through uh, military dictatorships at the time. So their take was quite interesting. Uh, and then a lot of uh, Japanese people, just because I loved getting mail from Japan, because again, this is before the internet, so if you want to see manga and anime-ish kind of things, uh, you actually had to know someone in Japan who would then send you a box of it. And, uh, yeah, uh, uh, my fellow Americans didn't interest me as much, um, although there certainly were exceptions. I mean, there were certainly people, long Spiegelman, who did these great caricatures that looked like people and animals turned inside out. Um, Yeah, that's kind of was his thing. Uh, He really held the mail art group in L.A. here together for a long time, and with his unfortunate passing, kind of mail art became less of a active thing here. Um, uh, Buster Cleveland, who had this thing about palm trees for some reason, uh, he did a lot of great stuff. But otherwise, it was um, a lot of Europeans, especially Eastern Europeans, that I was corresponding with and uh, trading stuff with. What, what was uh, MB's mail art like? Oh, um, 
you just look at any of his old cassette covers and you know exactly. It was the same kind of thing. A lot of uh, harsh, kind of typical industrial imagery and with his logo sketched into it. Um, a lot of his mail art actually had, it was more uh, cassette culture based. Um, he would uh, trade and send off cassettes, and they were usually remixes of whatever reel to reel he was working off of. And he'd do handmade covers uh, and then rubber stamp the title on them. Um, but yeah, for a lot of uh, people who later became the noise scene, uh, their mail art was what we now call cassette culture. They would be mailing cassettes and uh, to and from each other and organizing kind of informal uh, compilations. The cassette compilation back in the 70s and the 80s, that was like you'd, you'd get 20 tracks from people, you'd mix them together in one tape and then send out the 20 tapes. Everyone would get one copy back and there'd only be 20 copies. So um, I, I, I'm probably on like at least 100 cassette compilations that are mentioned nowhere because one, I don't have them anymore, and I can't remember what they were called or who was on it, but there's a, tons of material like that out there. And maybe it's still out there, maybe it's completely lost, I don't know, but there's a lot of informal uh, compilations were done in those decades. And you for sure don't have anything from then? No, you know, what happened is that, I, actually it was one of the reasons why I stopped doing mail art, just because I... I didn't have an address and that's the one thing you need yeah. <laughs> more than anything is to have an address where the mail can find mm -hmm. you so yeah starting like kind of mid well late 80s through really the mid 90s so it's probably 87 88 to nine oh, early 90s mid 90s I really didn't live anywhere. You know, there was a couple years, there was a year I was in Bordeaux. But, oh, wow. Uh, you know, uh, that was when, that was 92. So, yeah, I spent the year in Bordeaux. But other, and then, you know, so then I settled at Survival Research. That was probably like 94, maybe, something like, yeah, I guess 93, 94. Well, anyway, there was a good stretch there that I didn't have a, um, an address that was that was reliable, because I was constantly tra uh, traveling uh, from ninety one, oh eighty nine, through I guess ninety five. Uh, someone can do the right, research right. <laughs> and, and get the exact dates better than I can remember them off the top of my head. But there was that stretch that I was always on the road. I was always performing. I'd stay somewhere till the next show could get booked somewhere, and then I'd go to that next town. And I circumnavigated the globe at least two or three times in those years, just living out of a suitcase, couch surfing from one country to another. Was the suitcase noisy? Uh, okay, so the thing about loud luggage booming baggage is that that's when I should have done it, is when yeah. I was homeless. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. it would have uh, made know, the most sense. It would have, and I, <laughs> it's one of my biggest regrets that I wasn't clever enough to realize that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it would be it would be the most obvious thing. So, uh, loud luggage, booming baggage is actually a delayed reaction to the years when I was homeless. Right. <laughs> well, if anyone out there, any listener has any 
I don't even know. I mean, I can't imagine anyone would have any of this old mail art that even even stuff that you sent out. I, I mean, yeah, it's got to yeah. be lost to time. Well, uh, Victor Baroni uh, out of Italy and H.R. Fricker from Switzerland. Uh, well, Victor probably has a lot of that stuff because he never threw anything away from what I understood. Um, I don't know. He wouldn't have everything I'd done, but anything that was sent his way, he probably still does. You know, some of the old timers are like really possessive of their archives. But for myself personally, no. I uh, I lost everything uh, during the years when I was traveling so much. Um, I had a couple friends in Seattle keep a couple trunks for me, but they lost it over time, and so uh, my archives really doesn't start. I mean. It's not really that good until, say, the mid-90s. And since the mid-90s, I've been able to keep a more complete collection. And occasionally a fan will, or someone will, send me an item that they got from me from years ago that you know, I don't have. So, but yeah, for the, mo- for the most part, I have all the really important stuff. I may, I may not have much from the 70s and the 80s, but I, th- I think that most of... The highlights from my performanceography and discography are probably since the nineties. When you lived at, when you were with Survival Research Lab, when you were living, when you were staying there, that's when the, that's when you did the puppet show performances, correct? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Chip Finn, who uh, now is out of Detroit. Yes, we we know Chip. Uh, yeah, yeah. Shout, shout out to Chip. Hi, yeah, Chip. Yeah. Great, great, great uh, guy. Chip is a great guy, and. Um, he uh, wanted to do some kind of collaboration, so he would build stuff for me. It was a, a few things. He had he built this thing called, the, uh, we ended up calling it the Bang Box. We only used it once. Uh, but it was a big metal box with a bulletproof plexiglass uh, in front. And so the idea is that you would drop fireworks <laughs> in the box and watch it explode. Sorry. Watch it explode. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Bam. Bam. It just watch it explode. And uh, and it created quite a light show. But uh, one thing we didn't um, take into account was all the smoke that would accumulate in the box. And and so even though, it, you know, the box wasn't uh, sealed 100%, there were cracks. And so the smoke would just be bursting out. The seams like crazy. <laughs> it was a great show. You know, we ran out of fireworks. We didn't feel like, and there'd be big ones, like not just small little firecrackers, but you know, big M80s and bigger than that. And uh, but you know, the the box would contain all these little explosions quite well, just not the smoke. Um, and then yeah, so he made these puppets, and um, the puppets. Uh, the original idea is that uh, the puppets would simulate an old school, old style haters performance of smashing stuff up. The thing is, it would have been easier just to smash the stuff up yourselves because these puppets were so big, so clumsy, so heavy that it took a tag team of performers to to activate and actually work just one puppet. It took usually two to four people to take turns activating the puppets. Um, just because they were over-engineered to a ridiculous degree, which, I, of course, I loved. And the last uh, DVD, the DVD that has the the Omniwave Refresher movie has uh, video clips of uh, two of the three puppet shows that we did with using Chip's uh, puppets. There's another oh. DVD of Hater's performances that uh, Helicopter released, mm-hmm. and that has what is one of my favorite performances to watch 
that I'd love to know a little bit about the story behind, which is, I think, four or five people in the haters destroying a school bus while inside of it. Oh, yeah. With crowbars. Yeah, I could yeah. watch it for on loop for hours. I love that performance. Uh, yeah, yeah. So in Denver, there was these four, uh, I think they were Greyhound or Tramsway buses. I think they were Greyhound buses. They were parked under this uh, bridge, and they had been there forever. And they weren't—I guess they weren't abandoned because they were on private property. And uh, I was told they—they they were slowly being uh, scavenged. Um, people were using them for parts, or someone was using them for parts. But they were pretty much intact. And uh, this was Thanksgiving, whatever year that was, 87, 88, something like that. And uh, so we called it Hatesgiving. <laughs> and a small group of us just went down because we were bored and we just wanted to do something. So we took crowbars uh, to these four buses and uh, disassembled them, basically. Yeah, they're really getting smashed and torn apart in this video. If, if you haven't seen it... Uh I don't know. That DVD needs a reissue. So uh, we're, we're giving Weiss a lot of work in this episode. We need a we need a new version of drilling a hole through the sky and a reissue of the DVD. So so someone set fire to the buses and we had to leave. Oh wow! Uh, Post haste. Oh yes. So as we're leaving, we're all driving away, making our getaway. We can see black smoke behind in the back windshield, and we could hear the fire department. So we got out just in the nick of time. So the, the following day, a couple of us decide, oh, well, let's go and see the aftermath because, you know, we should document it because it's part of the performance. Well, when we got there, we were stunned to see that there was a propane tank right behind the buses oh, that my no God. one noticed. Oh, my God. No one noticed. And, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, it could have been a very different <laughs> ending <laughs> for all of us. Uh, wow. If the fire department hadn't gone there so quickly, the buses were moved. The the remnants of the buses were removed and cleaned up, and um, I think there's a shopping center there now. But, uh, it was fun, you know. There was it was kind of spontaneous, but kind of not. You know, we had talked about it for a few days beforehand, what we might do. We made sure there was a videographer there because we could see some pretty good. But they were probably the largest props I ever got to play with. <laughs> Another performance I was curious about is an explosions in the desert performance. Oh, yeah. Orchestrated and, explosions at Lost Skull's Mine in Nevada. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, well, this, of course, is <clears throat> halfway through my residency at Survival Research Laboratories. And um, one of the pyrotechnics uh, at SRL said, you don't blow stuff up enough. And I go, no, I don't. And he goes, well, let's fix that. And I go, okay. And so um, Lost Skull's Mine was a getaway destination for the SRL crew. Um, one of our crewmates had a, a stake, um, a claim, that's what he, he had a claim, a mining claim in that uh, area. And so once or twice a year, the whole bunch of us would go together, a caravan, to Lost Skull's Mine, and we'd occupy the territory, and we'd blow things up, among other things. I mean, you know, we also went out shooting automatic weapons and, I don't know, testing robots and blowing stuff up. 
<laughs> anyway, and uh, so we decided uh, one night that we would document it and lay claim to it as a Hadris performance. And uh, it's me detonating the uh, the bomb, so that's what made it official. What, was it a huge explosion, or were they? Was it was it multiple bombs, or was oh it, multiple? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember, but at least a half dozen, if not more, uh, explosions. Um, yeah, and and they weren't all as simultaneous. It was one after the other, and they were located in different parts of the hill that we kind of mm, evaporated by the end of the evening. Wow. Was was Chip a part of that? No, oh, Chip was there. Yeah, cool. Chip was. That sounds right. He was always at Lost Skulls. It was like, actually the only member of the crew that wasn't there would have been Mark. Mark Pauline. He he never went. He uh, he never felt. And uh, please forgive me, Mark, but he he felt that a general shouldn't uh, hang out with the troops. Uh, he he liked that separation of uh, of uh, the chain of command. <laughs> And I say this lovingly. Mark's a, a great guy, one of the best friends I ever had. But, you know, he's uh, not an easy man to, <laughs> to live with. You, uh, he is in some respects. But, you know, he's, um, he has a way to do things. He, he has this way he, he wants it done. And you don't work with Mark, you work for Mark. And that's fine. You understand that when you're there. It's his vision, and the rest of us are there to help him facilitate that that vision when you were there how many people were there while when you were living there i mean was it oh. a handful was it a dozen was it oh there's at least a dozen yeah okay yeah uh, in the building and in the adjoining buildings uh let's see well let's let's count them let's see there was mark and leslie that's two myself there's greg lay the guy who builds the giant tesla coils um, uh, Chip was there, uh, Lisa Pine, uh, they probably had at least three other roommates in that building, uh, Sergio and his wife, so that's 11, and I'm, oh, oh, oh and Phil, yeah, Creepy Phil, I love you, Phil, I say this, I say this, creepy GX Phil. GX loves you, Creepy Phil. Uh, so... <laughs> It's an inside joke. Um, so, yeah, so there's a dozen of us. Cool. And then there would be probably twice that many, or at least another dozen uh, core members of survival research. And that included, uh, well, uh, people whose names you probably don't know, but uh, there was at least a good couple dozen people who were at the time, the core group, and these are the, the engineers, the programmers, the pyrotechnics, myself as the sound designer, uh, Mark was the artistic director, uh, uh, Leslie at the time was the videographer, the documenter she took care of at the time, anyway. and um, Of and, the stuff that's documented on released videos, what, yes. what of that were you involved in? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, the titles I, I can't uh, think of offhand. I'd have to actually look at the... But anything that was released uh, in the 90s. Okay. Uh, my, my first involvement with them officially, even though I hung out with Mark and the gang, uh, my I got promoted to sound designer in 92 for the groundbreaking ceremony at what would become the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. 
and they had SRL do a groundbreaking ceremony. And so that was the first time I did sound uh, for the group. And then after that, um, Graz, Austria, um, and Aurillac, France. Um, and then, uh, so the SF uh, groundbreaking ceremony is, I know that was done as a short video. The trip to Europe, um, well, that might have been 91. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, dates don't matter. The, the, the Grotz and the French show, that was uh, a video. Um, and there was a big San Francisco show a few years later. They got away with, because although they were technically banned from performing in San Francisco, we did it on a dark over the water. So it became the jurisdiction, not of the San Francisco Fire Department, but of the uh, Coast Guard. <laughs> and the Coast Guard, yeah, sure, you can blow the thing up. We don't care. And uh, but then the then the um, uh, the Connie Chung uh, News Hour or whatever it was called. She had this news show, and she sent one of her reporters to cover the performance in that particular performance in San Francisco. And this was the beginning of the end for Mark's ability to perform anywhere in America for quite a few years because. Although the San Francisco Fire Department had no jurisdiction on the pier that the performance was taking place on, they sent a representative anyway just to keep an eye on what was going down. But Connie Chung's uh, reporter shot video of the San Francisco fire inspector looking very concerned and confused. And in her news, final news report made the San Francisco Fire Department look like a bunch of idiots, even though they had nothing to do with it. It was the Coast Guard that had full jurisdiction, but no one from the Coast Guard was included in the broadcast. So anyway, so uh, Mark and SRL got pretty much banned everywhere. Uh, there was a chance of doing some very big shows with this uh, very big rock promoter. And, and he says, oh, don't worry, I, I get pyrotechnics okay anywhere i want you know there's a lot of money here don't worry about it even he couldn't get permission oh, to put on wow. an srl show uh, bill graham bill graham presents does that ring a bell uh, of course yes. yeah of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so anyway he he tried to do stuff with though that organization tried to do stuff with mark but there was no way so it took a while it took a uh, probably a good 10 years for bad feelings to kind of evaporate and for mark to get to at least do small um, yeah, small presentations, a stateside. The first time I played in uh, San Francisco and Oakland, I think we played in a park that was immediately next to the SRL facility, but that's not the same one that you lived at. That's in 2000, no, so 2004. You're, you're th uh, 2004, Mark is still in... I think he's still in San Francisco. Was Del Sol Park, I think, was what it, what it butted up against? It's on the other side of this fence was like a warehouse... No, that's that's someone else. That was uh, maybe it was people associated okay. with SRL, but the SRL compound was in the mission. Uh, after I I moved out, they uh, after a couple of years they did move to Brisbane for a little while, and now they've moved uh, further north. Uh, but they were never in Oakland. But there were other people uh, like John Law who uh, associated with SRL who had warehouses uh, in Oakland. Uh, 
who would put on shells that were very similar, if not exactly the same as SRL, but it wasn't the SRL warehouse. Mm -hmm. So what exactly, as you said, you were doing sound design, what exactly did that entail for a performance? Well, for the first few performances, for the first five years or so, um, pre-recorded cartoon sound effects. Because I found SRL to be really funny. And I wanted to bring that out. <laughs> Again, a very anti-industrial culture. <laughs> this is fun. But um, Mark was fine with it. At the time, he, he, he appreciated the humor and I was fine with it. So I, I would have multiple cassette decks, all with various tape loops of very traditional, recognizable cartoon sound effects. And, uh, and I'd just do a live mix. Like just kind of like the classic, like just the... Uh-huh. All the classic sound effects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, everyone can hear them right now in their head. I, oh, won't, yeah. I won't try to do them. No, but everyone knows exactly what they sound like <laughs> yeah, because yeah. that's the yeah. sound effects that I used. And um, and that was fine. Then, uh, I don't know uh, when it was, halfway through my residency there, I uh, I guess I got bored with doing it. I, I thought it was a little too predictable, so I decided to... Uh, so originally, when I got involved with SRL, I wanted my work with them to be completely different than what I do for myself. I wanted to keep the two projects separate. At the time, that was important to me. By my fifth year living in the compound, that, that seemed like such an irrelevant issue, and I no longer cared. And so I just started doing more traditional GX sounds. And so amplified erosion, uh, actually the funnel on sandpaper, for the most part, for the uh, remaining years that I, I worked with Mark. And it worked just as well. It was more subtle, but as the machines broke down and there was less live noise, although I was doing live noise, but uh, as the machines broke down, there was less mechanical noises. You could hear the eroding funnel louder and louder. As with the uh, cartoon sound effects, you really didn't hear them so much at the beginning but they got more prominent halfway through, and by the end of the performance, they, they, they only sound left. So it created a sense of continuity from the beginning to the middle to the end of the, of the performance, which is the only reason why you would bother, because when all the machines are working, when all the robots are active, mm-hmm. they're loud enough on their own. Like, no PA is going to compete with that. Uh, you have the sounds for the midterm and then for the final finale, just to keep uh, yeah that sense of consistency it was that is srl the only time that you've i guess been a part of something else like for example you're not you're like you aren't in you haven't been in any other bands is or or have you or or am i am i wrong about that okay so i i Uh, just between you and me. <laughs> and definitely not these microphones. No, no, no. I used to be in this no wave band called Silicone. Amazing. Is there any uh, documented footage no. of it? There no. are footage, recordings, no. nothing. No, I, there probably isn't. I'd yeah. be really sh- shocked if if there were still. Was this, in, was this when you were living in New York? Or was uh, this... Seattle. Okay. And, and But we were really inspired by the No New York album and. That whole scene. I mean, I had experienced it firsthand when I lived in New York and reported back to friends back in Seattle. And we said, oh, well, we can do that. And I said, oh, well, sure, okay, let's let's give it a try. And we kind of failed miserably. 
right away, which is why I never really mention it because right it, it never beyond the first couple rehearsals it never existed. You know. So, so did you see? Like like Mars and DNA and all that kind of stuff when you were living in New York. Mars in particular really sticks out in my mind. Uh, I know I saw others, but it's Mars that, for what for whatever reason, uh, I, I can, it really sticks in my head. Uh, yeah, it, it it was great. You know, it was kind of like uh, I don't know. It's kind of like punk, but it kind of wasn't. Kind of like industrial, but it kind of wasn't. It really was its own thing, and. You know, it, it really spoke to the time it happened. Like now, it wouldn't make any sense, I don't think, aesthetically or culturally. It wouldn't make any sense. But then it was great. It was a very fresh sound. And um, it was also great because um, there were a lot of women involved. And women just play instruments a little differently. Uh, not, not exclusively, but I mean... A lot of women play instruments differently than most men. Yeah, and a lot of those bands did. They were. Oh yeah, no, women were a big part of that scene, and that was different. That wasn't so true in punk at the time, although it became so later. But really, wasn't uh, the kind of no wave scene that you always. And they were all art students. A lot of them were just you know from art school, and I was an art school dropout, so you know I could kind of relate a little bit. It, it went nowhere. You know, the, the, the couple rehearsals that we did were pointless right. and uh, no one knew what they were doing and it was just a joke. But, you know, there were flyers and there were stickers. <laughs> we got to try to find yeah. some for sure. Yeah. But I mean, even, even aside from something like that, like you and your collaborations would be, you know, the haters and Murs. But yeah. you, you didn't, you, you never made up, came up with like another name yeah. really. Yeah, no. Right? There, there was Not that talk, I can think of. There was talk of it, but we never did it. It never happened. Now, SRL was the only other group that I've been involved with creatively on that level. But did you like that being a part of something else? And I like being part of SRL. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say in, in all sincerity, uh, uh, because my parents uh, died when I was still rel relatively young, and I had no extended family. It was the first time in a very long time that I felt that I had an actual extended family. We were really tight at that time. During the 90s, the group was really, really tight. And a lot of us are still in touch with each other. Um, some really amazing creative people. Uh, really, for me, it was the golden age of SRL. It wasn't the original years in the 80s. It was the 90s where you had some really remarkable outside outsider intellectuals and creatives that were really came up with some amazing uh, gear and uh, amazing concepts and technology and really pulled off some spectacular performances. Um, one of the most amazing performances that, uh, of any kind that I was involved with was Austria and uh, in Graz. And uh, this was around the time of the beginning of the Civil War in the former Yugoslavia. And there was a lot of explosions, a lot of noise in that particular uh, event and uh, performance. And it was relatively close to the border, you know, Graz is southern Austria. So a lot of the locals thought that the Serbs were invading. They actually oh. thought, and, and they would call the local police, and the local police said, oh, no, no, this is just an American performance group. <laughs> Well, the locals did not believe this for a second. They're going, what, what are you drinking? 
get off that moonshine. So they called Vienna. They called the war, de- the the Defense Department in Vienna. And the 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 Defense Department in Vienna had no idea what was happening in Graz. So the country was officially for like about a 12, 24 hour period. The country was put on war readiness. <laughs> until an investigation Amazing. could confirm if the Serbs yeah. were inventing, I'm sorry, if the Serbs were invading right. or if it was just an American performance troop. Wow. Now, it made, headline, <laughs> it yeah. made headlines in Central Europe. And I have, I have news clippings from Austrian newspapers that going into vivid detail of this whole scenario. And I, you know, Mark plays it down, but I think, yeah, this, this, this is this is real art. This is performance art. This is professional wrestling at the level we want to see. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, that's so incredible. Yeah, you so, do occasionally play with another another group, though. I have seen you many times perform with AMK. Oh, there you go. You're right. There you go. You're absolutely correct, sir. I have been corrected. Um, <laughs> Me too. But, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I guess. Okay, I have no defense. <laughs> Not needed for performing at AMK. That's a, It's quite an honor and, uh, you know. Oh, it's great unique, fun. Yeah. It, it actually is a lot of fun. We did it for the first time. Well, so I've, I've uh, Tony and I, yeah, we have a very... Um, yeah, complicated history, and we've been involved in each other's projects, and um, but to perform as part of AMK, because before it was GX and AMK, or AMK GX, or the two guys. Two, two noisy guys. And uh, this was the first time where I actually didn't perform as me, but performed as part of AMK. And I've done it two or three times, but it's great fun, it really is. It's... Uh, yeah, it's just yeah, it's just a lot, a lot of fun. Gray and I were actually at the most recent show, which was your birthday celebration. Oh yes, that was so awesome. And that that lineup was Joseph Hammer, Damien Romero, John Weiss, uh, obviously Tony AMK, uh, GX. Am I forgetting some Damien Romero? Yeah, that's that was the AMK lineup. And, and did you say Eldon? And Eldon, so oh, yeah. Lord, Eldon. Eldon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, former yeah. podcast guest Eldon, of course. And yeah. I'm sure Hi, future. Eldon. And yeah. I'm sure future. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, if that lineup doesn't sound absolutely noise supergroup level to you, uh, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> when did you, so? When did you meet Tony? Oh my goodness! Because um, the, the haters Mersbau tape is '87, so I mean, sir, obviously, you know, before then. It's or, probably um, well, very early '80s, and. Um, uh, I had known of him through the whole cassette culture, mail art thing. And uh, so he had uh, come up to uh, the Pacific Northwest, I think probably Vancouver. I, I was probably in Vancouver at the time because I went to Vancouver to do some radio uh, radio show. Uh, they got all this government funding, so I was definitely into getting some government money. Um so, like I say, Tony and I have a, a real long, complicated history. We got involved. When we met face-to-face, we kind of bonded. Uh, we have the same unfortunate laugh, uh, which his sister was very annoyed at. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, we worked a lot on each other's projects. I mean, he's certainly been a member of the Haters all oh, humpteen times. He's released the Haters on his label. I've released him on one of my labels. and AMK's label, of course, being Band, Band Productions. Productions. And, classic. Um, 
yeah, we, we worked. Uh, he even helped me with. Uh, he was actually going to do an SRL 10 inch and uh, a, a 10 inch of my soundtrack. I'd done a couple soundtracks by that point, and and Mark was totally into it. He always wanted a, a, an official SRL soundtrack release. I mean, it happened, but not on Tony's label, But because uh, Tony listened to the recordings, and he said, well, it doesn't make any sense if you don't see the machines. And I agreed with him at the time, so he pulled the plug on, on that 10-inch, but... Uh, Years later, there ended up being a, a CD uh, released uh, with a bunch of yeah excerpts from different soundtracks, uh, which I don't know if it makes sense, but it was um, a popular release. <laughs> um, so you were active in SRL through through the all the way through the nineties. Yeah, yeah, um, pretty much um, from. Uh, as far as being an active member, if you can call it that, 92 to 02. Okay. Oh, wow. So yeah. into wow. The, even into the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, there was a, the last performance I was active in was at the uh, Legion of Honor. I think it was a, a Webby Award night. And they allowed Mark to do this medium-sized demonstration in the parking lot. Um. And and no one had told the bus company, and so the bus <laughs> kept like driving right up to like the stage area, and the performance uh, uh, towards the end of the evening was done. You know, all the smoke had blown away, the fires got put out, and and the audience had gone in now to for the Webby Awards, and uh, and I was gonna I, originally I was planning to hang out with the gang, and you know, and and. Uh, uh, review what had just happened but as I'm taking my gear breaking down my gear the bus pulled up right behind me and this bus would take me to my house right in I mean it stopped right in front of my house right so I lived on 46th Avenue and uh, I said well screw this so I just hopped on the bus and, and went straight home and that was that. <laughs> that, was that. That was the last time yeah, I performed. Although the last time they performed in L.A., uh, Not Human was doing the sound. And he asked for, and I gave him some samples to work with, but that a lot of people did. He had oh, like, great. quite a variety of sound sources. Yeah. So that was 2002. When did you leave San Francisco and come down to Los Angeles? 05. 05? Okay. 05. Uh, January 2nd? January 5th, something like that. So it was really the absolute very beginning of of 05 and moved to Hollywood. Uh, it was time for a change. Yeah? Yeah. Something you and Tara were talking about off mic um, and we kind of had talked about earlier is um, kind of just about math and um, the idea of, I guess, being influenced or finding inspiration in in these these types of things in noise and in industrial something different than kind of what was the inspiration at the time so when did you kind of when did you kind of realize that you wanted that you were going to look to other things for inspiration i guess than than this typical you know that what some people would call the typical industrial noise inspiration yeah. Uh, very early on, um, I have to say almost from the beginning, 
Well, okay, so it's a, uh, what happened with me is that I didn't know that industrial music even existed when I started The Haters. And that came a couple years later. Uh, I think uh, between MB and Masami, they kind of educated me about this other scene that I knew nothing about. And so this is still like 82, 83 by the time I realized, oh, this is other stuff going on. And maybe my point of view about it had been colored because MB was so critical of that scene uh, that I kind of uh, entered it with, uh, yeah, with a, with a bias. Um, I, I think because I was naive and ignorant of the industrial scene, I, um, and I was more into punk, that the punk scene colored me more than the industrial scene. And the industrial scene already seemed kind of passe by the time I, I found out about it, and although that was in 82, so I don't know if it was passe officially, but I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I thought there were other people doing far more extreme things. Uh, MB, Masami... Uh, you know, um, yeah, I just thought that, uh, yeah, anyway. Well, well, I think it, I think it's something we kind of talk about on the, we talked about on our episode with, with Pat and, and, and Mark, uh, you know, skin crime, just the time when, you know, perfect example. I mean, you did it. Haters did a tour with skin crime and Emil Bolio and Crank Sturgeon and Ox House Pfeffernas. Not, none of those bands sound alike have, you know, have, you know, they all, everyone has their own unique vision. Yeah. And, but, but it all kind of comes together in this way. I guess everyone's unique individual vision makes this kind of exciting thing as opposed to everyone fitting into the. Well, yeah, this was the other thing, uh, at least in the early decades of noise, the, especially in the eighties and throughout the nineties, um, anything, went anything was okay uh, there was no right or wrong way like you wouldn't ask how do how do i become a noise band how do i, I make noise well how do you want to make noise would be the reply um ah uh, there was this one time in san francisco at a regular records and and this kid actually did come up to the guy behind the counter and says well how do, how do I start making noise? And everyone in the store just looked at him and was, had this horrified look on his face. It was, it was like a cartoon. <laughs> like, and, and the guy behind the counter says, well, how, do you, how do you want You know, you just do what you want to do. And, um, and I mean, now, you know, in, in this age, you know, it's, well, we used to call it table core. You know, everything is uh, pedals on, on a table for the most part. Not that some of it isn't absolutely brilliant, because some of it absolutely is. But in the uh, 80s and 90s, especially in the 90s, um, if you had five acts, you'd have five completely different performances. You'd have hear five completely different sounds. And that was what was expected. You weren't expected to sound like anyone else. And if you did, people thought you were doing it wrong, you know. Uh, no one sounded like MB except MB. No one sounded like Emil Bolio except Emil. And um, and that was the way it was supposed to be, you know. So things, you know, as the same happened, uh, I'm sure, in other genres where things get kind of, um, not homogenized necessarily, but broken down into their based ingredients. And... Um, and, and now uh, noise has become uh, 
a kind of a style. It never used to be a style. Uh, I think it, it always has become a style now. And uh, I know uh, Richard from the New Blockaders is very critical. He, he would tell you that he thinks noise has become a parody of itself. I wouldn't go that far, uh, because I think some of what I've seen recently uh, is, is really great, and um, some people really know how to do it. And uh, you have a lot of stuff that's now mediocre, but what I think is amazing is that there is still a noise scene. You know, 40 years later, there's still a scene. It's still attracting new people. Um, there are really very few, if any, real passive fans. Everyone's got a project of some kind, be it a label, a blog, uh, a radio show, a podcast, whatever. Um, people are involved still. And I think to a point where the scene now is more important than the individual artists, I think, uh, in the first 20 so years of, of noise, what we would call noise now, it was the individual vision of, of the artist. That was the important, the most important thing. And the scene was secondary. But now I think it's the opposite. I think the scene is now the primary thing that people are into. And the individual performers are there to support the scene. Uh, but I think that's interesting because that's what, in, in the 70s, in my when I was involved in punk, that's what we wanted punk to be. We wanted punk not to have any heroes, not to have any stars, that everyone was equal. The, the band and the audience shared the same platform, the same uh, stage, and uh, that got lost when the band started becoming famous. Um, but I think noise has actually achieved I think noise has become the real punk. Uh, maybe not by design, but uh, certainly by happenstance. One of the things we've been, uh, what we've tried to start doing with our last episode is doing sort of a recent listening thing. Uh, we didn't really tell you about that, so we didn't do it for this one. But uh, normally we talk about we talk about stuff we've been, well, we're trying to talk about stuff we've been listening to. Do you listen to a lot of noise? Do you check out contemporary stuff? Do you listen to the back to the old stuff? Or are you, you tired of it? Or where, uh, what do you do for, for noise listening? <laughs> well, for noise listening, I guess I do listen to... Uh, Okay, so I will, uh, I'll bring up two things. He's not really noise, although he's been involved in the noise scene, at least in Colorado. That's little Fyodor, little Fyodor and Babushka. Uh, somehow I got onto his Bandcamp page and, and started listening to his greatest hits. Now, little Fyodor is, if you don't know who he is, just look up little Fyodor and Babushka. Did you, you did a split? With little Fyodor back in the it day. It wasn't a split. I... It was it was little Fyodor and the haters. Oh wow! Okay. Wow. So I wrote him a couple songs, and he did the vocals, and I added the noise. Fantastic. And, uh, he was an amazing performer. I mean, he really takes whatever the hell it is that he does, he's taken it to the level of pro wrestling, and 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 into the out into the stars. And he really is a unique performer. It's as much performance art as it is folk uh, um, or punk or whatever you want to call it. Uh, he's great live. He really is. He's a very, very dear friend of mine. And um, I just had to uh, had to do something with him, you know, collaborate somehow. He had an amazing vocal styles. Uh, you, can't, uh, you just can't describe it and do it justice, really. Uh, and people wouldn't think of him as a noise. Well, they kind of did back in the 80s. 
in the 80s, what he does would have fit in the noise genre. Before the battle lines were drawn. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, Human Head Transplant, um, another Colorado uh, band, uh, amazing performers live, and they really would kind of blend ambient, industrial, and harsh noise. Uh, they were masterful at it, actually. And... Um, because they were actual musicians, but they were really interested in harsh noise. And, and so they, they kind of fell through the cracks. And so uh, in the 80s especially, whoever was falling through whatever crack, they'd always end up in the noise scene because that was like the bottom of the pit. <laughs> so you couldn't fall any further. And, uh, but that was fine because you, you found your family, you found your friends and, and, and your peers. And... We all supported each other, even if we didn't particularly like what you did. Well, we would support you anyway. And um, um, so, yeah. So, Human Head Transplant actually, and and Little Theodore is what I've listened to most recently. Uh, I, you know, black humor. I listen to a lot of black humor. Uh, I, I especially his more recent ambient works. But if you're in the mood, his early early works are what you should give a listen to because. Uh, he builds mostly found uh, found vocals, found uh, voice recordings, but he ends up building whole narratives using these uh, found uh, human voices. And he only ever uses human voice. He doesn't use any other sound source. And some of his more, more recent stuff is actually pretty harsh. He breaks the words down to their syllables and very, very tight editing. And... Uh, so it's very different from his, his very early work, but it's, uh, I think, uh, quite fascinating. When I'm not listening to noise, I'm listening to opera. I love opera. Uh, and uh, Kurt Weill, opera, of course. Um, but uh, some of the more modernist stuff, Philip Glass's operas, I find are actually really beautiful, even if I don't particularly care for the subject matter. But... Um, I think opera is what power electronics pretends to want to be. Um, there's nothing more power electronics than a good classical opera. And, uh, and if you don't believe me, just put on some classical opera, sit next to a vacuum cleaner. I swear, you won't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> Samson and Delilah would be a crazy power oh, electronics. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you won't be able to tell the difference, really. Uh, no, but I love opera. I do. And I listen to it quite a bit. Uh, recently, I never used to listen to music much, but in in my old age, I've I've really developed a fondness uh, for opera. Very cool. Thank you. It's <laughs> great. No, really. Tara, who are some of your favorite opera I just, singers? You know, the singers I I just like Verdi and Puccini and just like Italian classics, some German stuff. You know. Everybody's bored with it. Terribly listening to this opera for sure. Yeah, I love it. One thing I'll add is since we're talking about the classics, Nietzsche was a composer. A lot of people don't realize this. And if you want to understand Nietzsche's state of mind when he was still healthy, listen to his musical scores. And you will realize what a love for life that man had and how his words were completely perverted by his evil sisters and the Nazi party. But the, uh, you know, the will to power is, is like a collection of all the notes that he rejected. You know, uh, this man had an incredible love for life and uh, saw the absurdity in life 
and you know wanted to fill in you know after we you know reach a state of the uh, rational uh, rationality when we realize there is no supreme being in the sky looking after us well how do we fill that void and we have to adapt and deal with the absurdity of that realization but there's joy in that and that's what i think a lot of his a lot of his music i think expresses that better than his writings well, it's hard to know what his writings were originally because they all got re-edited yes. to such a perverted degree that we can't really know what he really intended to say. But his music is actually pretty profound. And it, you can find it online. I found it online. That's how I found out about it, actually. People have posted it. And uh, there are recordings of... Uh, yeah, uh, of people's uh, playing his scores. You can find his scores online. And they're very cheery. They're actually really okay. cheerful. Do you see uh, so, uh, the noise you make in some way being kind of the about the joy of the absurdity of life? Oh, I think so. I would like to think. I think a lot of people, a lot of uh, a lot of people, realize that right away. I think they they see the absurdity, especially in the early days. Maybe it was a little easier because no one else ever used that word, haters. You know, uh, I really, in the early, the first few years, people thought it was a misspelling of hatters, <laughs> you know, because no one ever used that word. You know, and, I mean, really, no one ever used that word until uh, 10, 12, 15 years later, then it started to become more commonplace. But, in, you know, it was such an absurd name. People, and the, the performances were so absurd. People got it right away. Uh, I, I think people still either get it or they don't get it, you know. Um uh, and in some ways, it's like professional wrestling. You know, if you get it, you don't need any explanation. If you don't get it, no explanation will do. Oh, absolutely. What, do you remember when the, when it became when the term noise kind of started becoming what it was called? You know, that's interesting. So, like in the uh, as I remember it, anyway, stuck on the West Coast. Um, so it was originally in the in like. The very early 80s, it was called extreme industrial music. Yeah. And then by the mid 80s, it was, they, they called it, started, uh, late 80s, it was called noise, but spelled with a Z instead of an S. <laughs> At least on, uh, in Northern California. I don't know about the rest of the world, but yeah. Although I kind of saw it on a couple cassette compilations. So people were experimenting. So then it got to be noise by just noise. Um, without any adjective, say in the early 90s, and became very commonplace. And then you started hearing noise music. And that originally was kind of seen as a bit of an insult. And from uh, people only called it noise music if they were like a newbie and they weren't really, they didn't really <laughs> know what the real thing was all about. Because actually in the 90s, a lot of, there was a lot of debate in the scene, early 90s, is what we're doing music or not? And a lot of the participants, a lot of the artists thought that maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was something else. And this was a serious debate going on, not just on the West Coast, but especially Central Europe uh, and in Japan. That, the, the, yeah, so you wouldn't call it noise music. So many new people came into the scene, 
in the late 90s, early part of this uh, millennial, that um, it, it just became accepted. So now you can say noise music and not get slapped in the face. <laughs> and and you, were, you were of the camp that did not want to call it music. Is that Yeah, correct? I didn't see it. Uh, I, um, I rejected the John Cage argument that all sounds were music, which is actually not what he said. Okay, now it's what he, and towards the end of his life, what he accepted that he said, but initially... If you want to be really anal about it, what he said is that all sounds could be used in music, not that all sounds were music. But over time, this gets abbreviated to what we now are familiar with. And he got tired of fighting against the tide, so he just would conform to people's interpretation. But to me, there's a, a difficulty with universality. Uh, when you say that all things are one particular thing, I didn't like being pigeonholed as uh, as a musician or what I did as music because I think I thought that that limited my options. I had to worry about composition or improv or however I wanted to process the sounds. And uh, what I what I found in noise instead of music, and even in John Cage's version of music, everything is still composed. Even his silent piece is composed on paper as a series of pauses. Um, I don't compose anything. I'm more interested in the sound. I'm also, I don't want my sound to be limited to just the ears. I think that noise should be heard throughout the body. So it's a different attitude. It's a, a different approach to sound. And I thought it should be respected as such. Now I understand why there's a lot of noise people who do do music. I'm just not one of them. Were you saying you were reading something earlier that the sound of our inside, the, what was it? The sound of our insides is the sound of like static. Oh, I don't know, but we are made of mostly water. So any type of wave that you push through our body certainly makes a sound. So anyway, <laughs> yes, uh, they did some, some college, some university somewhere did this test that this study where they put people in a room that, however they did it, canceled out all external sounds. So they sat in absolute, complete silence. There's no external sound, only their own internal sound, which turned out to be a buzz. And it drove a lot of people completely nuts because they couldn't not hear this buzzing. Yeah. And it wasn't tendonitis. It was, you know, just the electrical impulses inside the brain and... The electrical impulses that go up and down your spine and nervous system and apparently it's a buzz and apparently it's really annoying and the ocean has a mysterious buzz too that nobody can yeah, yeah, describe where it's coming from it absolutely makes a, a weird weird sound and it's not whales it's not anything it has a harmonic range that is specific to each ocean and just like glassware does that's why if you sing in a certain note it'll blow up the glass because you're doing that harmonic resonance for that particular glass Wow. We're so all a no, buzz. We're all, we're all just walking noise machines, basically. Yep. Static we're, meat. <laughs> we're just a walking noise table of noise. Some of us more than others. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you all, you've always pretty much worked with uh, 
while maybe you've run things through a, a pedal or, or this or that, it's always been this other sound that is the is the fir- is the beginning. Is it starts yeah, with? Yeah, it's always uh, an analog source, and it's usually erosion of some kind. I mean, uh, uh, minus the the drilling or the the digging, or, but it's usually sanding. It's usually uh, or grinding. It's erosion. It's the most simple model of entropy that I can think of. You know, you take a substance and you break it down into little bits. Um, so that's the sound source, uh, which I find uh, most uh, effective in recreating. I mean, you know, the, you know, some of my records have been mostly like fire sounds or automobile accidents or such, but that's hard to like stage live. And, and actually, I've never seen much of a need to make the records or the CDs sound anything like the performances or vice versa. Especially in the early years, I saw them as two completely different animals and should be approached very differently. Those things that you can do live that don't translate on vinyl and vice versa. So I, I always, especially in the early years, tried to take advantage of what I could get away with um, in either medium. I think there's a title on the uh, Ordinarily Nowhere CD called Make a Fire and Be Happy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I think, I actually think that title is incredibly, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's a very, very... It's relatable. Yes, because it's something, it's something that um, uh, Tara and I have always talked about is this idea that when you're looking at, say, you know, you're at a bonfire, you're at a, a, a campfire, any sort of fire, and you're looking at the fire, it's one of the times that you truly were not, you, I don't know, you're not you, thinking of anything yeah, else. Yeah, you're primal, you're in the moment. It's like the first TV. Like you, there's just some sort of programming that's inside of us to just enjoy looking at the fire. Is that something you find looking at fire? Yes. Um, in particular, the track you're talking about is um, uh, transcripts from a conversation with a pyromaniac who was describing what he felt uh, when he started fires. And I, I found his attitude, I was reading it, and I used a computer voice to right in the recording, but... Uh, as I'm reading the transcript, I just thought that, oh, this isn't an angry man. This isn't like a pessimistic, kind of gloomy, doomy industrial kid. This is it's a happy-go-lucky guy. He just likes to burn things down. And that's how he enjoys life. And I, I just really, I, I like that. So I wanted to express that sense of optimism from a pyro- pyromaniac's optimism. I've never thought of that until just now that part of the joy of fire is is watching it decompose, watching the entropy, seeing something change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great. Thank you. I, I've uh, used fire quite a bit because it's uh, a lovely, a lovely staticky kind of sound. Well, man, this was this was incredible. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so definitely, everybody, August seventeenth, Oakland. Haters 40th anniversary California show. When is the Denver show? 
Do you have a date? Uh, uh, no, but it's middle of October. Oh, so middle of October, Den- Denver. You can look that up, or maybe we'll you know find it and, and put it in there. Um, but you know, look, any haters release, we encourage to go out and pick it up, especially the new forty double ten inch and flexi and flexi on influencing machine. Fantastic label, great guy. Uh, so please support them. Pick up the the new record. Where can anyone get directly get stuff from you? Uh, you can go to my Bandcamp page. What, oh, okay. Uh, uh, you can go there. Uh, actually, go to JupiterLarson.com. Jupiter with two T's, the hyphen, the E-N, dot com. And there's a whole bunch of links that will take you to various other sites and pages and what have you that you can find stuff. Congratulations on 40 years of the haters. No common sense. That's my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll do uh, we'll do this again on the uh, on the 80th anniversary. How about that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deal. You've been listening to Noise Extra. I'm Tara, and I'm here with Mike and Gray and GX Jupiter Larson. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years. By Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, only one E, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E, and on Twitter at noise extra with three A's. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.